0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1543.
1: Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show.
0: Folks, as you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been spreading some pretty terrible ideas, and she's wrong on just about everything. Well, I've put together the definitive smash of all of it. The Green New Deal, affordable housing, so-called, free college, high tax rates, it's in another free ebook, yes, a free ebook called AOC is Wrong, The Upside Down World of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Grab your free copy at AOCisWrong.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here, talking about a fairly controversial historical and political topic today, namely whether America had a Christian founding. And we're talking about this with Mark Hall, who is Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Politics at George Fox University, and he's the author, most recently, of Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. This is one of these topics that generates a lot of heat on both sides, and I want to cut through that just to find out what the answer is. But in addition to the answer, I also want to make sure we all understand the question What would it mean for America to have a Christian founding? What are the implications of that? What would be the indications that such a thing occurred? So that's what I want to talk to Professor Hall about. And I first found out about his book from Kevin Goodsman, longtime repeat guest on The Tom Woods Show and fellow Liberty Classroom faculty member. And when he endorses something, I take note. So I read this book and I thought it was very well done. So I thought I would discuss it with the author. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. I was just telling you that having read your book, I couldn't be happier with it because there are a lot of people who have dealt with this topic superficially. And I mean, there are Christians who have dealt with it superficially and there are non or even anti-Christians who have dealt with it superficially. And I, I thought it was interesting, you know, you uh, cited Kramnik and Moore who wrote a book called The Godless Constitution many years ago. I wrote a book review of that for modern age many years ago. So, like, you've read everything, and it shows in this book. It's very manageable. It's not too long. But, man, this book packs a punch. There isn't a bit of fluff in here. It's just argument after argument and, and, and just more and more evidence every single page. But let's start off with the most basic question of all. Who cares? Why does it matter to us today in 2019 whether America had a Christian founding in the 18th century?
1: You know, that's a great question. It's one my wife was asking me for year after year. I I did about a dozen academic books, and she kept saying, so what? What does it matter? And so this is my first book for the general reading public, and I began by saying, so what? Um, First of all, I just have to say, it's important to have an accurate account of our country's history. And I would say that for any country, right? If we're a citizen to Japan or France, we'd wanna know our history. But practically, the US Supreme Court has made it crystal clear that the founders use matters with respect to religious liberty and church-state relations. Ever since 1947, they have routinely gone to founding era history to cast light on the religion clauses of the First Amendment. So I think it has real implications for law and public policy as well. And I flesh these all out, as you might imagine, but as well, America's civic leaders, our elected officials continually appeal to the founders for guidance. And so again, I think it's only right to have an accurate understanding of what the founders actually intended for our constitutional republic.
0: Before we get into that, we have to address a common misconception that is shared by a great many people. And that involves what you discuss in chapter one, which is the alleged deism of the founders. Now, I'm Sorry to say I did not look at your notes, uh, so I don't know if you cite Mel Bradford's book, Founding Fathers, but he basically did some biographical vignettes of these people in a book years ago that just permanently demolished this. I mean, yeah, there were some deists, but that's not by any means the whole story. And whenever people tell me that, oh, they were all deists, I just think, all right, I'm just talking to an uninformed person.
1: You know, it's a ridiculous claim, and as you know, I begin each chapter with six um quotations from prominent scholars in recently published books saying things like most of America's founders were deists. And if you went to the end notes, you'd find I have another dozen or so there. So this is a very, very common claim. All of these books work the exact same way. The authors look at the four founders who became president, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, uh, Ben Franklin, and Alexander Hamilton, and usually someone else, maybe a Tom Paine or an Ethan Allen, now, this is problematic for all sorts of reasons. First of all, we do know for sure, and I acknowledge this, that a Franklin, a Jefferson, and an Adams are not Orthodox Christians. Um, however, that's not the same thing as being a deist. But before we go down that path, let me point out when it comes to others like a Washington, a Hamilton, a Madison, there actually is no clear evidence that they're not Orthodox Christians to say nothing of being a deist. So someone like a George Washington, for instance, references providence 270 times, and uh, he talks about how God specifically protected him as an individual, how God protected the nation, and of course, his deism is usually defined. Deists admit that there's a creator God but then contend that he sort of backed away and is not intervening in the affairs of men and nations. And so if we take that as their definition of deist, I think there's very good reasons to say maybe the only civic leaders in the American founding who are deist are Ethan Allen, and if we count him as an American, Thomas Paine. Jefferson probably is in his heart of hearts, although even he references God's intervention in the affairs of, of men and nations several times. No, again, you've got to look carefully at those. And I would concede those are probably for rhetorical purposes. But think in mind what we've ended up with. Three founders who are maybe reasonably called deists. And yet on the other hand, you have scholar after scholar saying most of America's founders were deists. Just an utterly unsupportable assertion in my mind.
0: Well, let's go from there then into more of the meat of the argument. Because that claim about deism is meant to poison the well from the beginning to try to win the argument from the beginning, saying, how could there have been a Christian founding with these people at the heart of it? Now, let me ask you, what does it mean to have a Christian founding? What would that look like?
1: You know, that's a great question. You mentioned Kramnick and Moore's book, The Godless Constitution. Now, what what they mean by this claim, at least on one level, is simply that the deity is not referenced in the Constitution. That's more or less right, not until you get to the dateline in the year of our Lord, 1787. And yet they wrote an entire book. So what did they do? Well, at least half of that book is dedicated to showing that most of America's founders were deist. Again, a proposition I think I utterly utterly demolish. But they do go on and they say, well, America's founders were influenced by secular enlightenment ideas. And here I'm very happy to debate them because this is exactly how I think Christian founding needs to be understood in terms of intellectual influence. And so when we dive into the intellectual influences on America's founders, I think a very good case can be made that they were influenced by Christian ideas or ideas developed within the Christian tradition of political reflection. So just to give a few examples, um, the idea that humans are created in in the Mago Dei, the image of God, and therefore worthy of being treated with dignity and respect and that they have the ability, the tools to govern themselves rationally the fact that humans are sinful, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that even saints continue to struggle with the old man within, and therefore we need a constitutional order uh, marked by things like the rule of law, federalism, separation of powers, checks and balances. Now, not that those two ideas are distinctively or uniquely Christian, but when we look at Americans in the late 18th century, 98% of whom are Protestant, 2% Roman Catholic, about 2,500 Jews in four American cities. When we look at how they learned to read with the New England Primer and the Bible, it seems to me that Christianity best explains why they came up with these two ideas, as well as several others that I described. So ultimately, our constitutional order was crafted by men who were profoundly influenced by Christian ideas, and they came up with an order then, constitutional order, that I think benefits all Americans, even to this day, even those who do not call themselves Christians, or even people of faith.
0: In your chapter, The United States Does Not Have a Godless Constitution, or in reading it, I was reminded of one of the things I said years ago in reviewing Kramnik and Moore, which was, this isn't my entire argument, but it was a chunk of my argument, that given the nature of the American constitutional order, it's a federalist system with enumerated powers, I have this old-fashioned view that that's yeah. what they what they established, Amen. then in a way, In a way, it doesn't even really matter what they did with the federal government because they left powers over all these questions to the states anyway.
1: You know, I think that's exactly right. And by way of contrast, as you know, there, of course, is not one Enlightenment, but there are multiple Enlightenments. But a lot of Enlightenment thinkers in the late 18th century were kind of going exactly the opposite direction of America's founders. They wanted a powerful national government run by experts. And they had a very different view of human nature. Humans are basically good, that they can be fixed if we just get the right educational system and this sort of thing. And so I think it's striking that America's founders went exactly the opposite direction. A very limited national government. There were a few founders in like Alexander Hamilton and James Wilson that wanted a, a national government with a plenary grant to power. But even most of the other Federalists recognized this was a bad idea, and certainly the ratifiers understood the national government to be very carefully limited in power. And so to the extent to which any government was going to promote religion or morality or have things to do with education or punishing most crimes, these would be the state governments if these things are to be done by governments at all. And I think by this era, many Americans were starting to think that actually Christianity is better off if we get the government out of the business of regulating it and funding it. And so they were disestablishing churches, but they did that not because they were Enlightenment rationalists, but precisely because they wanted Christianity to, to flourish.
0: And I think even Jefferson, who, you know, of course, had somewhat unorthodox religious views, nevertheless, if memory serves, his argument was that if you have, let's say, religious tests for public office, what this is generally going to create is just a bunch of hypocrites. You know, people who say that they have a belief that they don't actually have. And how is this going to make anybody happy? How could this possibly be the right approach? So that isn't necessarily coming from – that's coming just from a pragmatic standpoint more than anything. It's just looking at what are the practical results of having rules like this. Let me pause this conversation for a minute to do something purely selfish and ask a question that is of interest only to me and nobody listening. I want to know, what is your opinion of the scholarship of David Barton?
1: So David Barton is a popular Christian historian, as you know, and he gets right a lot more than he gets wrong. I I, I have to say that. But because he's not trained as an academic, he sometimes makes errors that are very easy for academics to jump upon. And so he's been beaten up on by Warren Throckmorton and John Fia and Greg Frazier and others. And unfairly, I think, and he's actually revised his scholarship to remove some of these initial errors and this sort of thing. And so in my book, I'm really not interested in these popular Christian historians. And you could add another half dozen prominent authors to the list. And I intend instead focus on this almost scholarly consensus that most of America's founders are deists, that they wanted the strict separation of church and state, and this sort of thing. Because that's where I think the battle really is.
0: All right. Well, I appreciate that answer. All right. Let's talk about separation of church and state, which is by the way a phrase people think is probably think is in the Constitution. You do make the point here that you're not necessarily saying that it's a good idea for there to be an official religious establishment in the states. And that's that's not what you're trying to do in this book. You're just trying to look at the question of what was the American founding like and and what was the nature of the arguments that were being made and how often did they cite the Bible versus how often did they cite John Locke? These are all good questions, good questions that a historian should ask and that we as students of history should want to know the answers to just to be better informed. But I'd like to know now, talking about the First Amendment, what did this mean? Uh, did it mean to build a wall of separation between church and state? And if it didn't, well, what is... What does that look like? What does that really mean for us?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Let me first of all mention something about the the phrase separation of church and state. I think you can trace this easily back to Jesus Christ, right? Given to Caesar what is Caesar's, unto God's what is God's. And Christians, pretty much throughout all of history, have understood that the church and the state are to be separate institutions. The only question really is how do they interact? How do they cooperate with each other? Now, the First Amendment begins Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Thomas Jefferson, in his famous letter to the Danbury Baptist, in 1802 letter, said that this, this establishment clause, it's regularly called, Builds a wall of separation between church and state. This is just a profoundly misleading metaphor, and a lot of mischief has been done in its name. To answer it a bit too simply, I think the Establishment Clause simply means what it says, that we aren't going to have a national established church. Through the doctrine of incorporation, states are prohibited from having churches as well. So we can't have an official state church in Virginia or New York City or New York State or that sort of thing. Otherwise, there is all sorts of room for the church and state to cooperate, for the state to promote and encourage religion, for presidents to issue calls for prayer and fasting or Thanksgiving Day proclamations, for states to adopt voucher programs that parents who send their children to private religious schools can participate in, Um, on and on we could go about what is constitutionally permissible. Now, just because something is constitutionally permissible doesn't mean we should do it. But I think here we should just have good debates in our legislative bodies and among citizens. Should we have a voucher program or not? Should Arkansas create a monument of the Ten Commandments on the state house grounds or not? And let's debate the merits of these things rather than pretend that the Establishment Clause prohibits them.
0: All right, more fun, interesting, provocative stuff in just a moment after this message. Folks, I have an amazing life hack for all of you who are overwhelmed by the number of books you want to read. Well, there's an incredible app that solves this problem, and I highly recommend it. It's called Blinkist. It's really unique. It works on your phone, your tablet, your web browser. It takes the best key takeaways from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Now, I like Blinkist because if I have to go somewhere that's half an hour from my house, between going there and coming back, I can consume the equivalent of four books. A couple of books I've read through Blinkist that I recommend you check out would be The Four-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, and then a great book, Factfulness, Ten Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. You can see why old Woods here would enjoy a book like that. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com woods, try it free for seven days, and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com woods, to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com woods. You know, when I think about these sorts of questions, I think I've said in a recent episode that I think it would be interesting to complement a study on how Christianity has influenced America with a look at how America has influenced Christianity. Because I I think there is something about American exceptionalism that has bled into the way Americans look at Christianity that has not always been a, a happy blending where I think Americans have taken, have secularized a lot of religious concepts. They've applied Christian ideas in places where they don't belong, whatever it is. I mean, and it's both left and right. I mean, the religious left in World War I was comparing Christ with the American soldier and Satan with the Germans. And I mean, this is just not, you know, I I think serious Christians would have laughed at this kind of thing years ago. But I, I think it's interesting that to suppose that it may actually go both ways. And I know this is not something you cover in your book, but I wonder what you think about that.
1: You know, I I think that's absolutely right. And if I can go back to the early colonial settlements, John Cotton has a wonderful essay. Basically, he's asked, to what extent should we attempt to create a Christian commonwealth? And he gives a surprisingly nuanced answer. He says, look, if you're a Christian in Turkey, in the Ottoman Empire, you just keep your head down and worship God in the privacy of your home. If you're a Christian in England, where you have these, these long standing constitutional and social institutions, maybe you try to influence them, but there's probably only so much you can do. But if you have a wide open land, and he's just here thinking about the United States of America, you know, not maybe treating the Native Americans with the respect they deserve, but, you know, a group of fellow believers who come over here to create. Um, a godly commonwealth, a city on the hill, here we have the freedom to try to create thoroughly Christian political and social institutions. And so I do think you have this um, experiment in America in ways that we haven't seen throughout the world. A David D. Hall of Harvard, a Michael Winship of shine some great light in this. Uh, But I think you're also right that as Americans had this largely freedom to govern themselves, even when we're part of the British Empire, but then particularly after we broke from Great Britain, you do see ways in which these experiments began to impact American Christianity. One of my favorite books here, and you're right, I don't address this in my book, but Nathan Hatch, a very fine historian, has a book, The Democratization of American Christianity, where he basically explains how this great wave of democratization that swept America in the early 19th century had a profound impact on the American church and the way in which we worship God, the sort of expectations we have for ministers. To just give one example, in the mid 18th century, almost all ministers, certainly of the Congregational Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Anglican Church, would be college graduates, right? Graduates of Harvard and Yale and and what we now call Princeton and and so forth. By the time we get to the 19th century, we have a far more democratized views. Uh, These Baptists and Methodists are running around without college degrees, sometimes barely literate, you know, sort of reaching into this egalitarianism and saying, "Why, why is it such a big deal to know Greek and Hebrew and theology? Don't I just need my Bible and nothing else? And so, yeah, I think you do see a, a significant impact on American Christianity. And, you know, that's maybe one of the least harmful ways, but then certainly when it's tied up with God and country and war, yeah, you see some very pernicious ways in which American exceptionalism, for want of a better word, impacted American Christianity.
0: I bring that up only because I don't want listeners to get the wrong idea from our conversation about my own views, because my own views is that it's not so much that we have to worry about the church and the state being, you know, collaborators because this might have a bad impact on the state or corrupt it somehow. I think it's the opposite. I think the church is far more likely to be corrupted by the state, co-opted by the state, wind up adopting the state's priorities. So I'd rather keep them separate. But at the same time, I understand the point that you're trying to make in the book, which is that there are some conversations we can't even can't even have a sensible discussion about because we begin with a faulty premise. Well, you can't have this kind of, you know, the state can't allow you to choose this particular school, you know, like you can't get a tax refund and use this money for this particular school because it, you know, it's not religiously neutral or something. If that's what people think the policy has to be, because they think the founding fathers prohibited such and such type of policy, then yeah, that's that's ridiculous. We can't even have a conversation about it. But I just get concerned about Christians who think that the proper approach right now in the current cultural environment is to hit back by saying, well, look, if they're going to use the state against us, we need to grab the state and use it on our behalf. I feel like it's one of these weapons that you're going to regret using. But again, I I apologize. I'm taking you a bit off the the thesis of your book, which we should indeed return to. And why don't we say something about chapter four where you're arguing that it's not just a rhetorical flourish – when you read the founders saying that the civic authorities should protect, promote, and encourage religious observance.
1: Yeah, so l- l- let me just, first of all, agree with you 100% about what you just said. And I, I, as you know, I go out of my way in my book to say that the founders created an inclusive regime. They understood that Article 6 ban on religious tests would permit, um, they actually used in the ratification debates, maybe a Muslim or a Jew or an atheist to hold federal office. And the federalists had to say, yes, it would. And I think many of them probably thought those wouldn't be the best outcomes, but they understood the nature of the regime. They clearly understood that uh, Jews, for instance, have the same ability to worship God according to the dictates of conscience as Protestants. And so it, it was a very inclusive regime. And when I argue for things like vouchers, and I am a big believer in vouchers, I actually go out of my way to say a good voucher program will permit all parents to participate, right? Whether you're Jewish or Sikh or Muslim or Protestant or Catholic or secular. So I'm very much landing on the side of liberty and pluralism here. But if I can return to the founding era, a lot of that chapter is aimed at demolishing this myth that the founders desired to build a wall of separation between church and state. And I give a lot of fun stories. Let me just give you perhaps my most enjoyable story. I really love this story. Literally two days after Jefferson penned this letter to the Danbury Baptist where he said the establishment clause creates a wall of separation between church and state. He went to church services in the U.S. Capitol building where he heard none other than John Leland, the great Baptist itinerant minister and himself an opponent of religious establishments preach. Jefferson also on his own authority permitted the Treasury Department and the War Department building to be used for church services as well on Sunday morning. And I like that story because I think it illustrates it's one thing to oppose religious establishments that is having an official church of a nation or state and saying that there are ways in which it's appropriate for, say, churches to use government facilities to hold worship services or having a president issue a call for prayer and fasting, which Jefferson, of course, did not do. Um, And yet... Washington did. Adams did. Even Madison did. And presidents routinely do that sort of thing. Now, we can debate the appropriateness of, of, of this. I'm not really a big fan of these things. And I think it's good that modern presidents have become much more inclusive in their language. If you read George Washington's um, famous Thanksgiving Day Proclamation in 1789, which was issued on November 26, incidentally, the day we're doing this interview, you know, that's a very Christian thanksgiving day proclamation more recent presidents be it obama or bush or trump issue more inclusive thanksgiving day proclamations and i think that's definitely appropriate in this diverse country that we've become
0: i have a couple more things i want to bring up one is religious minorities the subject of religious minorities and where they fit in and how they are to be treated in the american constitutional order what do we learn about what the founders had to say about that
1: one of the things I argue in my book, and it's one of my favorite letters from this era, is America's founders clearly understood that even religious minorities had a natural right to act according to their religious convictions. Now, some of these religious minorities are accurately called Christians. So the Quakers, for instance, who could not participate in um, warfare because of their religious convictions, or who could not swear oaths because of their religious convictions. America's founders accommodated them. Article Two, the Presidential Oath of Office, has a religious accommodation that would provide a Quaker, a Brethren, a Mennonite, with the option of firming the presidential oath of office rather than swearing it. Of course, anyone can take advantage of that provision, but in the context of the time, it was clearly aimed at these religious minorities. One of my favorite letters from this era is George Washington's letter to the Hebrew synagogue of Newport, Rhode Island, where he wrote to this tiny, tiny religious minority a letter that made it crystal clear that not only would Jews be tolerated, but more than toleration, that they have a natural right to act according to their religious convictions. I I think it's just a beautiful letter, and I quote from it twice, in the book, if I can switch over to the establishment clause, some of the groups that drive me the most crazy are groups like the Freedom From Religion Foundation or the American Humanist Association that basically say there's a wall of separation between church and state. So therefore, for instance, a World War I era cross that was constructed by a private group but eventually um, came to be on public property, this somehow has to be destroyed or, or decapitated or something. Fortunately, the U.S. Supreme Court held that this is um, constitutional by a vote of 7 to 2. But some justices would seem to suggest, well, only because it's old. If it's a new monument, then we would have to find something else. But this is very problematic. And if I can return to the example of religious minorities, in 2014, Ohio dedicated a Holocaust memorial. Think about that. A majority Christian state dedicates a Holocaust memorial on public land. This Holocaust Memorial features a star of David, clearly religious symbol. The Freedom From Religion Foundation, people said this cannot stand, this must come down, this should never be. I would say that's utterly ridiculous from, the, from an Establishment Clause perspective anyway. Um, putting a star of David on a Holocaust Memorial is not an established religion. It certainly is constitutionally permissible. Now, if the Freedom from Religion Foundation, people want to say this is somehow imprudent, that's fine. Let them make that argument. But let's not pretend that the um, that this sort of memorial violates the Establishment Clause. Similarly, I was recently at the 9-11 memorial. And when you go to that memorial, you see the famous 9-11 cross, but you also see stars – In Crescent, you also see the Star of David. Um, This is America at its best, I think, celebrating our pluralism, our diversity. And it's far better than scrubbing the public square free from religion.
0: The other thing I want to know about is something that I know a libertarian audience would say, well, private property solves this problem. If you have a monument, then it depends on whose property it's on. You can do whatever you want. But right now, not all property is privately owned. So that doesn't really answer the question if there is a monument that has some religious significance, is it correct to say that the establishment clause prohibits the continued you know, existence of that monument or the erection of that monument? What can you say about that?
1: Yeah, so this is a great distinction. If it's on private property with private funds, there's no question about it. Entities can do whatever the heck they want, more or less, you know, given building codes and that sort of thing. Um, If it's a government that is speaking, if it's something the government is doing on government land, it actually is free to do pretty much whatever it wants. And I would argue the Establishment Clause certainly permits Ohio to put a Star of David on a a Holocaust memorial. If permits uh, Maryland to take over this 40-foot cross memorializing World War I dead. It permits Arkansas to erect a monument of the Ten Commandments on the state house grounds. Now there's another category that's a little more confusing and that's when the government provides what's called a limited public forum. When the government says all sorts of different groups can come into this space and erect maybe, let's say, temporary holiday displays. When the government does that, um, then different groups can come, and you know Jews can erect a menorah, Christians can erect a manger scene, the Freedom from Religion Foundation can put a um, monument of the Bill of Rights up. And so there I think it's um, the government does have to be neutral. But when it's a government speaking, the government has a great deal of freedom. And this is not just... My opinion, the U.S. Supreme Court held this in an opinion about a decade ago.
0: Well, the book we've been talking about is Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth by our guest Mark David Hall. I'm going to link to it at tomwoods.com 1543, which is our show notes page for today. Uh, is there a, a website that you'd like to direct people to for more information about you and your work or about the book?
1: Yes. My wife built a website for me called markdavidhall.org. And so yeah, I would um, love for readers. You can find more information about this book and the other dozen or so books that I've written or edited as well as some articles and media appearances and this sort of thing. So yeah, that would be a great place to go.
0: Okay. Excellent. I'll link to that at tomwoods.com slash 1543. All right. Well, I appreciate your time. I appreciate this book. I think you've addressed a uh, pretty important issue in American historiography, because it's, it's a historical topic that's been debated endlessly. But I think fruitlessly and pointlessly by people raising uh, irrelevant arguments or going off on tangents, you really are hitting the meat of the question, and I think more effectively than I've ever seen it done. So uh, very well done, and thanks very much.
1: Hey, thanks so much, Tom. It's been my pleasure.
0: All right, folks, remember Black Friday is just about upon us here in November 2019, and that's when I have the most outstanding deal of the year on the lifetime membership to my libertyclassroom.com website. At libertyclassroom.com, you get courses taught by me and by other people I trust, and you must know a student in your life who could use a lifeline to sanity. But it may also be a gift for yourself. This is my dashboard university where you can learn on the go from people you know you can trust who are going to teach you the real history, the real economics, all that stuff while you're driving around, and then you can demolish all your enemies, and ain't that worth it. And then secondly, remember this week is the best week of the year to get web hosting because Bluehost is having its Black Friday week discount, $2.65 a month. I mean, come on. You want to lock that price in. Figure out later what you want to do with your website that you want to create or your blog. But lock that rate in while you can, and I'll help you get some publicity for your site to generate some traffic for you and some other nice bonuses. So get all the details as to how to grab this deal and get my bonuses over at TomWoods.com slash publicity. I've got a great episode for you tomorrow on Thanksgiving Day. I'll see you then.